The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I know it seems like we're going, we're actually going two steps back and four steps forward as we go through this book. (laughs) And here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me read, I'm going to actually read from verse 14. If you would follow along to the end of the chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. And he's talking about Christ's love for us. The fact that he died for us and was raised and saves us. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, because of this, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. If you remember, Paul had a very strong opinion. His name was Saul then. He had a very strong opinion about Jesus uh, and his followers who claimed he was the Messiah. He rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He had strong opinion about it. In fact, he was on a, a mission to stamp out Christianity. And he says, so I had known him according to the flesh, according to the standards of the flesh, the way that people are measured in this world by people in the world. He says, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. He's a part of the new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg in behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, that is the Father, made him who knew no sin, that is the Son, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What I want, I want to do today, I hope that I can do this, is to convince you that uh, God is very interested in displaying the glory of the cross in your daily life. The glory of the cross. Martin Luther said, the cross alone is our theology. (laughs) The cross alone is our theology. And, And his reasoning was this. The one who was nailed to the cross was Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we need to rethink what God is like. What kind of God is this who would bleed and die for us? Michael Reeves, who wrote a book called uh, Rejoicing in Christ, made this statement. Listen to this. He says, this is not the kind of supreme being I naturally imagine when my mind goes gallivanting. Settled cozily in my armchair, I tend to assume that God must be rather like me. Oh, bigger and better than me, I concede, but basically like me on on cosmic steroids. Then I see the cross. When I look at the cross, it's like a defibrillator for my mind. It's shocking. Looking at Christ on the cross 
and seeing the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians, in fact, I'm going to have you turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And beginning in verse 18, this is one of those parts of the Bible you should have marked in your Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 through 31 talks about this very thing. Talks about the fact that Christ on the cross, Emmanuel being crucified, is a manifestation of the power of God and the wisdom of God. And yet it looks so powerless and so foolish. Listen to what Paul says. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, that is the foolishness of the gospel, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it is a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it is foolishness. But to those who are called, that's who've been called by God, who've believed the gospel, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What do you have in the gospel when you hear this proclamation of the cross? Well, you have the picture of a man dying on a cross, and it's called the demonstration and definition of what love really is. John 3, 16, uh, Romans 5, 8. It says, this is the great demonstration of God's love. This is the proof that God loves the world, is Christ dying on the cross. It was a huge miscarriage of justice. When you read the accounts in the Gospels, these phony witnesses against Christ and the way that they railroaded him through this court and then gave him a death sentence was horrible. And yet the Bible says it's the perfect justice of God. That's amazing. God isn't screaming unfair, unfair. He says this is the great demonstration of justice, of righteousness. Jesus nailed to a cross between two criminals. Can you think of a picture that shows a man in a weaker state of being than nailed to a cross between two thieves? Beaten so badly that Isaiah says you wouldn't recognize him as a man? Have you ever seen a person look so weak and yet the Bible calls it the great manifestation of God's power, the ultimate display of power. How in the world is that? Well, it's because hanging there, Jesus was crushing the head of the serpent. That's what he was doing. That's what Genesis 3.15, the first prophetic word in the Bible, the proto-euangelion, the proto-evangel, the gospel in its first expression in Genesis 3.15 says that he the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's what Jesus was doing hanging on the cross. He was crushing the head of the serpent. He was tying up the strong man so that we could be set free. 
And this, this uh, driving out of the prince of this world was Jesus as he hung there on the cross, looking like the weakest man on the face of the earth. He was destroying death. He put to death death by hanging on the cross. And Jesus, nailed to a cross between two criminals, was this manifestation of God's power by putting the spiritual powers to open shame and triumphing over them. When you read the accounts, you can see that Satan believed that he was accomplishing something powerful in having Jesus crucified. And yet what was really happening is he was ripping the keys of death and the grave from the hands of Satan. Jesus dying on the cross is the reason that you are spiritually alive today. On the cross, we see true, pure power. But it's being used as it should be, which is to bless. It was a blessing of God that came through this horrible scene of Christ crucified, stretched out on a cross. T.F. Torrance, a Scottish Presbyterian who lived a few generations back, wrote, The cross, with all its incredible meekness and patience and compassion, is the most potent and aggressive deed. Get that. It's the most potent and aggressive deed that heaven and earth have ever known. It is the attack of God's holy love upon the inhumanity of man and the tyranny of evil upon all the piled-up contradiction of sin. God was dealing with sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 9, that what Jesus was doing was putting away sin as he hung on the cross. Do you see the irony of this? That Jesus, the God-man, the eternal Son of God who came into the world, hung on a cross, stretched out, beaten, and hanging there looking like the weakest thing that ever existed. And yet, it was the mighty power of God. Of God. Sometimes we think the power of God's only seen in the resurrection, but it was seen on the cross. This is where, this was the lightning rod where the power of Almighty God worked in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin and all of its consequences. And it's through faith in Him that we receive this glorious deed that He has accomplished. Think about the parallel here that Adam in the garden. He seeks knowledge from a tree. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And God said, do not eat of this tree. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet Adam takes from the tree and what what it produced was death. He died because of it. And death has has invaded humanity and every single generation. I was looking the other day at some of the teachers I had in seminary. I was, I don't know why I was thinking about them and how old they were when I had classes from them. And, uh, and I was kind of surprised. I thought they were old men, but they were just my age. And, uh, but then I noticed this, every single one of them, uh, Charles Feinberg, uh, Ace Laverne Schaefer, um, Dr. Clowney at Westminster, all of them died. Every single one of them died. Most of them died in their 80s, and every single one of them has died. And death continues. None of us are going to escape it. 
And yet death is completely changed for the believer because it's no longer a penalty, but it's a passageway into the presence of Christ for the believer. And that's because Jesus came and hung on a cross. Jesus died on a tree and he won the knowledge of God for us. Adam was seeking knowledge and ate of the tree and he found death. Jesus died on the tree, but he brought us the knowledge of the true and living God. Uh, I teach a class at the seminary called uh, Theology Proper. It's a study of God and, you know, you look at his essence and attributes and, and all that. And I never had thought about this. If you want to introduce somebody to who God is, tell them about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where you see God in all of his power and his majesty. Now, that sounds weird to us. The glory of the cross. And yet God has so arranged it that he actually wants us to live in such a way that the glory of the cross is seen in our daily lives every day. So on the cross, we're given the salvation of God and this counterintuitive revelation of God. You want to see who God really is? Look at the cross. That's God hanging on the cross. That's the eternal son of God who was fully God, and yet he was hanging on the cross and dying for our sins. We see the humble, self-giving, perfectly generous and compassionate God on the cross. You want to know what kind of a lover this God is? You want to know how compassionate he is? Look at the cross. That's where you see it. So Luther said, all thinking about God must be done in the shadow of the cross. That's stunning, and it's true. It's at the cross where we see God in all of his greatness. But not only does God reveal God to us, it also takes our mask off. In the the first chapter of the Gospel of John, um, John writes that Jesus was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And that is because he had true eternal life. He had the very light of God shining through him. And this is the stunning thing that people in the presence of Jesus saw the truth about themselves. It's hard to take the truth about ourselves, isn't it? It's the reason I've never talked to a psychiatrist or a psychologist because I don't want to know. But in John 3, verse 20, Jesus said this, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, that his heart will be exposed for what it really is. At the cross, the the, the bloodthirsty fickleness and guilt of man was laid bare before everyone in Christ's Quiet innocence. It's really a stunning thing because, you know, the the seven last sayings of Jesus, these utterances are very brief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or into your hands I commit my spirit. But it wasn't oratory. It wasn't like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught for three chapters in Matthew. What was stunning about the cross was what you were seeing there. Once you understand what the Bible reveals to us about what was happening when Jesus was on the cross, it's the most stunning thing in the world. 
and the humility of the Son of God descending from glory to Golgotha. You know what Golgotha means? It means the place of the skull. And it was a place where the Romans loved to take their enemies and humiliate them completely. Humiliate them completely. You know, we worry about, uh, in, in this country, we want, we want to make sure that, that the, um, for example, the death penalty, that a person dies easily. We don't want them suffering and retching and so forth. That wasn't Rome. No, no, they wanted Jesus to hang there for as long as he could stay alive and be gawked at and hissed at and sweared at. That's what they did at Golgotha. And so the Lord of glory, the one who created the whole universe and was with his father in the third heaven, descends all the way from the third heaven and comes down and he ends up at Golgotha, stripped naked, beaten to a pulp and hanging there in your place. So when Paul says the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all in order that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, that's, that's what got him. And that's what should get you and me. It's what should really control our heart. The glory of the cross is described here in um, 2 Corinthians. Let me turn back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's described here in uh, verses 14 and 15, and then down in verse 21. And uh, this is what I'm trying to convince you of, that God actually wants to display the glory of the cross in your life, in your daily life. And he's going to tell us how in these few verses that we're going to look at. In the very beginning and end of this passage, he gives us the gospel. He tells us about the cross. In verses 14 and 15, what I just quoted, and in verse 21, it says, he, and in the context, you can tell, If you remember grammar from grammar school, you can tell that he is referring to the father. The father made him who knew no sin. That's the son. The father made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now, sin and righteousness, in the Bible, sin isn't just wrongdoing. Sin is a word that's used to describe rebellion against God. Rebellion against God, that God's commands, what he commands us to do, wouldn't we just say, I'm not going to do that? That's referred to as sin in Scripture, and sin always has guilt attached to it, real guilt, not guilt feelings. Sometimes you can sin and have no feeling whatsoever. How many times have you men failed to love your wives like Christ loved the church this week? Don't raise your hand, but uh, most of us experience that on some kind of regular basis. And we don't even feel guilty about it. It's not guilt feelings. It's real guilt. And this is what guilt is. Guilt is liability to a penalty because you have violated God's command. And it can only be removed. That guilt can only be removed by someone bearing the penalty, either you or someone else. So in Scripture, uh, there's three primary words, or four primary words, actually, that describe the crosswork of Jesus. There's propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus died as a sacrifice. The Father gave his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. And the, the picture of a sacrifice, which is pictured throughout the Old Testament, thousands upon thousands of sacrifices were offered, blood shed in the place of sinners who offered it. 
But the thing that the sacrifices were to picture was two things. Identification, that is substitution, that the the sacrifice stood in the place of the sinner who was offering it. And expiation, I know that's a big word, it's just a legal term that means the removal of guilt by someone bearing the penalty. What Jesus was doing on the cross, he was hanging there for you and paying the penalty of your sin. So that it, that's why we talk about how foolish it would be for you to try to work, to gain righteousness with God, to do through your good works, to, to cause God to receive you and accept you, instead of depending completely and totally upon the work of Jesus Christ. Because that's what he accomplished. And so in these first two verses, 14 and 15, we have the gospel there, and it's pictured primarily as a substitutionary atonement. Now, this is a doctrine that's hated by a lot of people. They don't like this. Substitutionary atonement. That when Jesus died, he was actually standing in your place and my place, and he was suffering death in our stead. In other words, he lived the life I should have lived and didn't, and then he died the death I deserved to die. But he died in my place. And then at the end, this great exchange in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you see the exchange? The exchange is our sin for his righteousness. We give him our sin, he takes our sin, our guilt, and he gives us his righteousness, his acceptance with the Father. I'll tell you, one of the most stunning things to ever read is Isaiah 53, because this was the text that most of the gospel preaching was based upon in the first century, in the early first century, before the writing of the New Testament. And it says there, it says that the Father was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to offer his son as a sacrifice for our sins, if he would give himself as a sin offering, a guilt offering. If he did that, it says he would see his seed. Now, we're a fairly insignificant group of people in in light of everything that's going on in the world. Just a little group of people here gathered here. But guess what? Jesus Christ is looking down at this group gathered in his name, and he's satisfied. That's what what Isaiah 53 says. He will see his seed and be satisfied. I can't imagine that. That he's actually satisfied with the fact that he paid the penalty for our sin and reconciled us to God. Isn't that stunning? I mean, that's that's amazing. It's mind-boggling. That God is actually, that the Son is actually pleased with what he accomplished through his death for us. Now, in the middle of those, the first presentation of the gospel in verses 14 and 15, and the second presentation in verse 21, those are like bookends. And in the center, from verses 16 down through verse 20, you have three ways in which Paul says, we can display the glory of the Christ of the of the cross in our lives. The first one is this. We have a new way of seeing. He's given us a new way of seeing. If you look back, we've looked at this before, but it says in verse 16, therefore, 
In other words, therefore, because the gospel's true, he just quoted in verse 15, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. If you have an NIV translation, I think it says, we no longer see, uh, we no longer see anyone according to the standard of the world. How does the world look at you? Well, it, you're a statistic and you, you have certain assets. There are certain things that are important about you that the government really wants to know and other people want to know. Have you gotten one of those calls yet? I got one of those calls, left a message. Uh, I'm, I'm filing a lawsuit against you uh, for not paying your taxes. And then I get an a, uh, email and it says, <clears throat> we have just uh, taken this much money out of your account so that you can pay your taxes, signed the tax department. And, but but the, here was a catch. It had a little button it wanted you to click so you could see the receipt. And you know what that would do when you click the little button, right? Well, there are some people who really look at you and they measure you by what you have, what you've achieved, what kind of title do you have. That's how the world looks at people. But that's not how God looks at people. And that's not how Paul looked at people. Paul came to look at people differently because he now looked at Christ differently. He looked through Christ to people. And every person he saw, he saw them through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. When Paul says that one died for all, therefore all died. God's warning to Adam when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, quite literally, in dying, you will die. And so the death, the death penalty, we're told in Romans 5, that that death penalty came down to every person, every descendant of Adam has that death penalty upon them. And he, and he talks about this in Romans 5, how generation after generation, people died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and yet they didn't sin in the same way that Adam had. They didn't commit a sin where God said, if you do this, you're going to die. But they kept dying. Even innocent little babies died. Why is that? Because what Adam did affected the whole race. He threw us into this situation when we, where we have the death sentence upon us as a human race. That's why I ran into an old buddy at this retreat I did a couple of weeks ago. And um, he was telling me that he used to be, uh, as a career, he, was, uh, he owned a body shop and then he worked for a dealership. And, and he said, but then I went to work for, for a, a mortuary. And he said, I always wanted to do that. I just wanted to help people that had lost a loved one and be able to counsel them and help them and so forth. I said, well, one thing about it, that's a good business. Right? Because you're not all going to buy cars, but you're all going to die. You know, you're not all going to get a loan from the mortgage company, but you're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And so when, when Paul says, one died for all, in the place of all, therefore all died, that what Jesus did met the obligation for all those under the curse of sin. Now, there's a lot of argument that goes around about this, exactly how this works. But let me, let me just say this. Salvation is in Christ. Whether you're a 16-point Calvinist or a three-point Arminian or whatever you are, the point is Christ died for sinners, and he's the only one who can save you. 
He's the only one who can provide for you forgiveness and life and a relationship with God. No one else can do that except Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only in Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the Savior, and you cannot find salvation in anyone else because he's the one who's qualified to give you forgiveness and to give you life, eternal life, that's going to last for all eternity. But in this new way of seeing, notice he says, therefore, we no longer look at men this way. It's because of the gospel. Because his heart was captured by the gospel, he began to look at everybody differently. Every person that you come in contact with is a person that needs Christ or has Christ. Every single person. Because he's the only Savior. And so Paul began to look at people differently. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a guy that looked down his nose at everybody. And yet now he came to look at every person through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, if you've had your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, if you have come to understand the gospel, if you have come to see Christ hang on the cross as the love of God manifested through his son, then you have something you should be excited about that you cannot keep from sharing this glorious message. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard of Jesus? That's the good news. He's the good news. He's the one who can save. And the interesting thing is, if you notice, uh, there's a progression here uh, between once we see Christ as he is, then we see people in light of Christ. We see them differently. So we're, after we're given this vision of Christ, then we're given the ability to see others through this, this glorious light. I begin to see people in light of the gospel. No one looks the same once your eyes are open to the cross. If you've actually been captured... If your heart has been captured by the cross of Jesus Christ, you'll never be able to see people the same way unless you try real hard. If you refuse to exercise this glorious vision that Christ has given you, then you can start losing your ability to see like you should. You can let your vision grow dim. So how do we keep our vision? How do we keep on seeing people through the cross? How do we keep on seeing Jesus as the one who stood in our place and so forth? How do we do this? Well, let me give you the exercise. The exercise is found in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And rather than quote it and miss, mess it up, let me just read it to you. Colossians chapter 3. This is something else you ought to mark in your Bible. And this is one you should memorize. I'm saying that to you as I'm afraid to quote it to you because I might get it wrong. Therefore, if you have, and quite literally, therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ... When you put your faith in the gospel, you died in Christ, you were buried in Christ, you were raised in Christ. And he says, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above. Very strong word. Seek, search, look for, consider, examine, investigate. Keep looking at the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. 
Make this the primary focus of your vision and of your thought life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 12, which we all know, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says, and do not be conformed or stop being conformed to this world. Be being transformed by the, your mind, which is being renewed. The job isn't done. Have you noticed this in your spouse that the job isn't done yet? Their mind isn't totally renewed yet? Our minds, it's a present participle in saying our minds are being renewed. The Spirit is renewing our minds, but how is he doing it? As we set our minds on things above, as we set our minds on Jesus Christ, our mind is being renewed, and we're beginning to see as we ought to see. I've told you before, when I had cataract surgery, I remember it was stunning to me once I was able, you know, they took the bandages off and everything, and to look around, the color of everything, the brightness, it was incredible. When you came to Jesus Christ and he opened your eyes, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember what it was like to see Christ in the gospel? It's glorious. And the way we keep that intact, he says, is be transformed by the mind that's being renewed so that you may prove or approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When you do this, be prepared for a criticism by the Pharisees. And, and, you know, there are accidental Pharisees, and there, then there are intentional Pharisees. That is, uh, let me just read you a verse. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes begin grumbling to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why would you have anything to do with these sinners? Because you have new eyes. Because you've seen Christ, and you know that your neighbor, you know that person that you cannot stand to be around, you can look at them through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, you understand Christ died for sinners, and that's what we were. He didn't die for good folks. He died for sinners. He died for people who had the sentence of death upon them. That was all of us. And everybody that you talk to has the, the sentence of death hanging over their head. It says in John 3.36 that uh, if you believe in the Son, you won't be condemned. But if you don't believe in the Son, you've been condemned already because the wrath of God is hovering over you. It's ready to fall. You see, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us who have put our faith in him. And so everybody that you see and so some, there are going to be Pharisees who say, what are you hanging around that person for? Why, why, why are you associating with that tax gatherer or that sinner? You remember what happened to Jesus when he was at a Pharisee's house having a meal and they're reclining at table. So his feet are out away from the, the, the table and they were probably in a courtyard and this lady comes in who was known to be a sinner and that meant a woman of the streets, but she had heard the gospel. She had heard the good news that Jesus Christ could save a sinner like her. And so she sees that he's there, hears that he's there, and she comes in and she begins to wash his feet with her tears, to dry with her hair. And the Pharisee is offended. He is so offended because Jesus is allowing himself to be touched by this woman. 
You remember the question Jesus asked him? You know, when I, when I came into your home, it's just a courteous thing to do to give me some oil because they were in such a dry climate. Give me some oil to put on my hair and my face and to wash my feet, to have your servant wash my feet, but you didn't do any of that. Or to a kiss of greeting, which was kind of sounds odd to us, but it's the way they would welcome people in their homes. And he says, yet this woman came and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she knelt down. And why was that? Why was it that Simon the Pharisee didn't have any problem not treating him with hospitality, but this woman was overwhelmed with him? It's because those who've been forgiven much love much. And the difference wasn't that he hadn't sinned as much as her. The difference was he didn't know he was a sinner. He didn't want to admit he was a sinner. So when we look at people, we're gonna, you're going to find out that there are going to be people that you know that you should share Christ with. You're going to actually have to treat them like a human being that you normally might just pass by and have nothing to do with. The best thing to do, is a little hint, is find out what their name is and call them by their name. Now, I'm the most horrible person in the world about remembering names, but I can remember them for a few seconds when they tell me their name, then I can call them by their name. But see, what you're doing is you're saying, you, God actually knows who you are. That's why he sent me here, because he knows who you are. And he sent his son into the world to save people like you. So first of all, we, are to have, we have a new way of seeing and use that. Exercise your eyesight. Begin looking at Christ and therefore look at people through the lens of who Christ is. And the second thing he says is we are now part of a new creation. In verse 17, back in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. It's quite literally what it says. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation we don't, talk, we don't write like that or talk like that in English. We'll typically have more of a structure, but that's what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, what's going on here is that he is saying, guess what? When you connected with Jesus Christ by faith, and now you're in Christ over 150 times in Paul's writings, that expression is used, that you're in Christ. He also talks about you being, but Christ being in you. But the, the, the thing about being in Christ is you have a whole new identity. You're a part of the new creation. Let's look at a couple places. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Well, let me go back to verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ with a view to, that is the ultimate goal, to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. In other words, to a situation, to a, uh, a state of the creation that is suitable to the fullness of times. What would be suitable when, when God is through with his work of restoration of his whole creation? What will it be like? He says that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him, after we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after his counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to open Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who's given as a pledge. Get this. The Holy Spirit's given to you as a pledge. That's like a deposit. It's an earnest. He's saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you, and I'm going to give you the Spirit to live with you, to dwell with you, to share his life with you as long as you live as a pledge of your inheritance. That's what he says, who's given to, uh, as given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God, God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What I'm getting at, and I want to look at one other place, that's Romans 8, is that the work of Christ is, is far greater than you ever talked about or thought about. It isn't just to save you and a few of your friends that Jesus came and died on the cross. Jesus came into the world and ended up at the cross because God wanted to redeem and restore and renew his creation. I'm talking about the whole thing. You know, the thing is so big that they can't find the end of it. The Hubble telescope now lets us know that we cannot see the end of this creation. Jesus came into the world and he ended up on the cross in order to redeem and restore and renew this whole creation. And so when you put your faith in Christ and you come to be in Christ, all of a sudden, you are a part of this new creation right now. In fact, there's an expression in Hebrews 6, using a completely different context, but he says, he he refers to tasting of the power of the age to come. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to experience the power of the age to come, of the new creation. You're a part of the new creation. It says, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, in the, the sense that in which all things have become new is not your looks. It's not even your sins that you commit. Because I know, I'm sure this is true because some of you have told me this, that you still from time to time commit sin, right? So it isn't that you're perfect. But it does mean you have a perfect standing. You have a perfect standing in Christ. You are now in the new creation. In other words, God is completing this glorious work of restoring and renewing everything, not just saving you. In chapter uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the time we're in right now, before the second coming of Christ, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you. The revealing of the sons of God. Right now, at the present moment, I look at you and I can't tell if you're a son of God. But one of these days, you're going to be able to tell. One of these days, he says it right here. Notice, he says, uh, verse 20 again, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God, in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There ain't going to be no problems with the earth when this is completed. We're not going to have to worry about global warming or anything like that because God is going to renew and restore everything. But get this, he says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together now until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. We have a taste of this new creation. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the resurrection, the redemption of our body. Uh, Okay, 
I know I hope you notice that he uses adoption a different way than we typically use it. He's using adoption in the sense that we're going to be set forth before the whole creation as sons of God. It's going to be visibly clear. And that's when the whole creation is going to be set free from this curse. And you're going to be set free from the curse. You know what the curse is, right? You know what it's like to live in this present imperfect situation? And there's no product in all the world that can make you perfect. But he says, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which is the adoption, which means we often see adoption in the Greek mind was when a a person was set forth as a member in a family of status and standing. That's going to happen. We're all going to be set forth as the sons of God. And then the creation is going to be set free and the work of Christ is going to be completed in applying what he did on the cross. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked like the weakest thing in the world, he was doing something so mighty and so glorious that we can't even describe it. This is our hope. It's called the blessed hope, which means it's a hope that makes you happy. It's the hope that gives you satisfaction and joy when you ruminate on it, when you think about it. The cross is Christ's work that will not only save a a host of lost sinners, but will fully redeem and renew the entire creation. And trusting Christ brings us into this new creation. The last thing is we have a new ministry. We have a new ministry. You have a new ministry. I have a new ministry. When we got saved, we were given this ministry. Notice back in 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 5, he says in verse 18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, you're probably familiar with this word means because it means to restore a broken relationship by removing the cause of the distance between the two persons. All of us have have struggled with this at different times in our own lives or with people that we love, and there's been a rift, there's been a distancing, there's been a barrier that's set up between two people, and they refuse to be reconciled and to come together and forgive and to love one another. And he says that this work of reconciliation, which Christ, this is one of the primary words for the use for the cross work of Jesus Christ, he reconciled us. The reason we needed reconciling is we were at a great distance from God, and God reconciled us in Christ. So it means to restore a broken relationship by removing the barrier, by removing that thing that caused you to fall apart. And so he says, now uh, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely... And by the way, the ministry of reconciliation, let me ease your mind a second. The ministry of reconciliation isn't getting people who are at each other's throat to like each other again. So just breathe a, a sigh of relief. No, it's talking about being a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes on to explain, he says, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How'd he do it? By not counting their trespasses against them which means every way that they've offended God by not counting their trespasses against them and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In shorthand, it's this. God has declared peace. 
through Christ. Every person you talk to, I don't care how mad they're at at God, God's not mad at them because Christ has paid for sin. And so you can approach anybody and share the gospel with them. They're not all going to believe, and some of them are going to remain alienated from God for all eternity. But you have the, you have the freedom to function as an ambassador. In fact, that's what he goes to say in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? We have a lady running for president who was an ambassador. She was an official uh, agent of the president of the United States. You are an official agent of the living Christ. You're an agent of the living Christ. That's what an ambassador is. And so he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then he says this, we beg, we appeal. On behalf of Christ, we reconcile to God. The word you is not there because he's not telling, he's not saying to these Christian Corinthians, you need to be reconciled to God. He's saying, we are ambassadors and so we appeal to people continually. Be reconciled to God. God has done everything necessary for you to experience the peace that he has declared if you'll just believe on his son. If you'll confess with your mouth that he's Lord, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You know, the Bible's filled with uh, summaries of the gospel. Like 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that Jesus died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried. He was raised again according to scripture, and he was seen. Or... um, uh, there are just many places that we have shorthand for the, for the gospel. But guess what? You are the one. It is your responsibility. It's my responsibility as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to keep my eyes open and my ears open and be sensitive to people so that if God puts me in the presence of a person who will actually give a hearing to the gospel, I need to share the gospel with them. And what you need is not another course in evangelism. You just need to trust God, believe God, and tell people about Jesus Christ and what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. So we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I, uh, I looked up that story, you know, the Japanese soldier who was in, I think he was in the Philippines, actually where he was stationed, but he was kind of one of those assignments where he was all alone. And I thought it was that he continued to think that he was still at war, that Japan was still at war with the Allies for two years, but it was 29 years. So peace had been declared, but he was still at war. Everybody around you that doesn't know Christ has not taken seriously this announcement of the gospel that you can have peace with God. You can enter into the peace that he has, that he has purchased through the blood of his own son if you'll simply turn to him and put your faith in Christ. Now that will entail repentance because repentance means I turn away from the God I'm serving, which is a false God, and I turn to the true God and I worship him and I receive this way of salvation from him that he has provided in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he closes with this, la- this last expression of the gospel. He made him, the father made him. How do we know that's the father? Well, in the previous verse, be reconciled to God. And he's talking about 
Jesus has provided for us so that we can be reconciled to God the Father. And he says, he, the Father, made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, becoming the righteousness of God is a wonderful thing because it says that your standing and status before God is you're as loved by the Father as Jesus was loved by the Father. Last week, I said that the glory of Christ is the fact that he has been loved by the Father from all eternity, and he wants you to enter into that glory. He wants you to experience that very same love of the Father. That's what he prayed for in John 17 in the priestly prayer. He prayed that the Father would love us just the way he had loved him from all eternity. That's amazing, isn't it? And it's, and it's the reason that it's possible is because God has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God. But not only that, what I'm talking about here is this is the ministry that we've been given. You're an ambassador. I think we ought to get T-shirts and everybody wear their T-shirt. I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Ask me about peace with God. I'm kidding about the T-shirt, but that certainly should be our mindset. That's who you are. I have failed at this so many times. I think of all the times where you meet somebody and you have an opportunity. You could easily share Christ with it, and then you just, you just blow it. You, you get your mind on something else. If God is really in charge of your life, which he is, if he's really sovereign and therefore he's ordering your life and he's, and he's maintaining it, he's going to put you in situations where somebody's standing right before you whose name you can discover by asking him, uh, that person is in need of being reconciled to God, to enter into this reconcile, this peace with God that God has purchased through the blood of his son. So I just want to encourage you this week, this week in your daily life, please exercise this new seeing that you have by setting your vision on things above in Christ. Investigate Christ. Christ is the most glorious person you will ever know. He is so glorious that it's really difficult for us to even describe how glorious he is, but the Bible has given it to us. Find out, read Colossians 1, and write down what it says about the glory of Christ. And then, so, exercise this new way of seeing. Look at people through the lens of the cross. Secondly, uh, understand and rest in the fact that you're a part of the new creation. And finally, take seriously the fact that you have this new ministry, which is being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father... How could we ever thank you enough for allowing us to come to have eyes open to the glory of the cross? We are so grateful. There's nothing in all of life that we can know that is so glorious. And we thank you for it. We thank you, Father, when we see in our mind's eye or in pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, that what we're seeing is the almighty God carrying out this great and glorious wisdom of redeeming a people for himself. And we do thank you for this work that you've called us to, to be ambassadors. Please help us to be faithful to this this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.